Hello, Discernibillions. Today, we're having another interesting conversation with Tim Cudmore. Now, Tim Cudmore comes from Queensland. You're in Queensland, right, Tim? Yep, correct. Gold Coast. Okay. Tim's from the Gold Coast, and he has a long history, work history of working as a consultant to governments uh, and other institutions, I guess, because as a as a younger man, he suffered a uh, traumatic brain inj- injury and so has become somewhat adept at uh, behavioral analysis, I think, understanding how people behave and why. So who knows where this conversation will go? I've only met him briefly the other day. Uh, and But as always on Discernible, we go for as broad views as possible. So I'm excited to see where you take us today, Tim. Thank you for joining us. Oh, happy to be here, mate. All right, Tim, shall we start with uh, a brief history of your TBI and then your superpowers, shall we call them, if no, I can no, call them that? No, of course. And that will give us a good foundation into some of the things you're noticing around the place, like with um, the vaccine lunacy and just e- everything else. So yeah, who are you? What's the TBI story? Hmm. So as a boy, uh, 10 years old, I was uh, on a playing on a push bike in a driveway and a car essentially came up, took me under, uh, dragged me for a good five metres. And at that point in time, my uh, skull here, you might better sit here, there's a little bit of divot there, fractured and then went deep into the brain. So among other things, that left me with a permanent traumatic brain injury as well as a spine injury and long-term semi-hemiparesis, which means the left side of my body doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't work as well as it could, I guess you'd say. Very similar to someone who's had a stroke, for example. Right. Uh, so basically, and one of the things we were talking about is there's something known as savant syndrome. Now, although I haven't technically been, um, you know, diagnosed with this, there's what's known as an acquired savant syndrome. And that's very common after people suffer very, well, not common, I should say, it's fairly rare, but can occur after people suffer serious traumatic brain injuries. And with that, and from a very young age, I've had a, a unique ability to kind of project empathy, if you will. I can listen to someone's story and then, as if I'm feeling their emotion as themselves, I'm also feeling it. So I tend to be, um, you know, in layman's terms, you know, people might refer that to being psychic or being, you know, uh, you know, some kind of talent, you know, telepathy. But no, it's basically just, you know, after, and I've been disabled for 24 years now. So after a considerably long time, I've learned to build on this and develop it as long as with some, you know, official and unofficial education, I've been able to develop these very rare and unique skills that allow me to not only understand other human beings and, as I said, part of my consulting work to whether it's working with hospitals or NDIS disability organisations to help academics and, you know, other administrators or operators to understand that lived experience, to understand what it's like to suffer severe trauma what it's like to suffer through, you know, psychosocial things like, you know, bullying and the, the, the mental illness side of a brain injury. So along so the way, Tim, to, oh, yeah, sorry. This, yeah, this is why uh, I'm just going to interrupt you to flesh out a bit more as mm-hmm. you go. So this is why obviously governments and, and corporations uh, pursue you for your, your work because you have a unique perspective. But can I ask about this perspective? How do you know that you're not simply experiencing empathy as we all do? Because you, you said you have a unique ability to put yourself in another person's shoes. I, my brain is saying so. So do I. So what do you mean? Mm. 
Well, basically, I, and I often describe this as when someone's telling a story, you know, it's it's not just a matter of, you know, like I said, sympathy is understanding it and, and rationalising it. Empathy to an extent is actually feeling it. But what separates me is that I can put myself into your mind, feel what you're feeling, and then predict what you're going to do in response to that feeling. That's really what separates me from most people is my predictive ability and that if I'm working with a clientele or working with mentorship or someone I'm going through really, you know, PTSD, for instance, I can understand how you're feeling it, I can understand why you're feeling it, and I can understand why the actions you're taking beyond that um, basically develop and evolve. And that's where I started to begin to develop this, you know, ability to predict human behaviour, predict where people are going based on my ability to essentially put my mind to a place where they are currently are based on all of the things they have felt. And, you know, if you, if you believe in causality, for instance. So can we, I don't know if this is respectful or not, but can, mm-hmm. we, test, can we test this? I mean, I'm inviting you to openly um, analyze me as we go throughout this interview. <laughs> yeah, of course. You like, and tell me where discernible is at or tell me where how I'm behaving because mm-hmm. I'll be open back so the viewer can see uh, whether you do have this ability or not. All right, so governments have sought uh, after you, organisations, you, you've been working with them uh, on certain things up until recently. Mm. What's going on there? Okay, so for the last five odd years, I've, I've run my own small business, a consulting business. It's uh, under the name Ask Tim, and that's ultimately, you know, people reach out and they ask me questions or, you know, I do consulting work. So of, of late, the last couple of years, I've been helping, you know, organisations, hospitals, uh, you know, statewide committees, advisory committees, scientific committees to build what we call, you know, consumer experience or consumer involvement. Now, that's something that's really come into the limelight to be highly valued over the last couple of years. There's quite a few um, organisations that specialise in, in finding and acquiring people with you know, if you're doing a program about burn injuries, they'll go out and seek people with burn injuries because we've found that there's this significant divide between academic knowledge, you know, what you can read in a book and then real-world lived experience. So, yeah, I've been working with a lot of different organisations to help them build those programs to Im- improve the consumer experience, whether it be a study or it be an administration process. And... As I said, for some time I've been doing that until recently when they brought in these mandates and as of December last year, I'm no longer allowed to work in hospitals, be it paid or volunteer work, no longer allowed to work with people on the NDIS or go to um, organisations that have people on the NDIS. So a lot of my work was working with younger people who have suffered a traumatic injury or going through things. I would mentor them, I'd say, this is what I did to get through that difficult period. Um, and now I'm no longer allowed on the premises, which is a, a bit of a tragedy, if you ask me, that a lot of people are missing out. You know, they're reaching out to me, but I'm like, sorry, I can't I can't attend your facility because of these rules. Yeah, these rules, it's worth mentioning that uh, I'm noticing a lot of people reaching out to me and other platforms talking about their stories and it's a different type of person so in the beginning it was those who didn't want to get any vaccine at all uh and that's all the media kind of portrayed there were people who didn't Mm. have vaccines they neglected a certain 
class or group of people who can't get vaccines and also can't get exemptions, which is ludicrous. Mm. But people like yourself with the TBI or other conditions where it's advised not to get these vaccines, too dangerous for you. And I would lump them in with another group as well now who have had one or two doses and have had a negative reaction uh, and really can't or won't get a second or third or fourth. Uh, so there is a new thing developing now with these vaccine mandates in that um, I guess it's more of a mainstream concern. So can you tell us a bit about uh, that experience? Because I think you're in that second group, that group that um, weren't necessarily just thinking vaccines are evil in the beginning, but you actually were medically concerned about mm. getting one. Yeah, very much so. So as you can imagine, living with a brain injury my entire life, I'm uh, you know, very cautious about, you know, what I put in my body, how I treat my mind and, you know, obviously sleep and diet and a lot of these, these low-level things. But almost immediately there are a lot of stories coming out of Israel and the United States about severe neurological reactions, of which we found out when, you know, they had the freedom of release on all the uh, clinical documentation that there were significant safety signals that could raise alarms and, even the TGA themselves acknowledged that Bell's palsy, which is the you know uh, facial um, paralysis or the facial spasming, is is possible. So I talked to the GPs. I got their opinion, but more so I talked to my neurologist. And again, because I'm well connected within the you know brain and spine community, I reached out to a few other neurologists and some neurosurgeons. And the consensus was that there's simply no safety data. There's nothing to show that this is safe for me or that it won't trigger, you know, a further adverse reaction simply because if you can't predict how these will affect a normal brain, how could you possibly predict what would happen to someone who's actually got a physically different brain, like a significant scarring, you know, tissue scarring? So the brain itself is actually fundamentally different. And the way I kind of relate it to your average person is, Let's say, for instance, you had cancer, you know, in your early 20s and you battled that cancer, you did radiation therapy, you know, you did the chemo and then it went into remission and you beat cancer. Now, if someone came along and said, in order to work, you need to take this injection, knowing that it might cause cancer, there wouldn't be a single person on this planet who knowing, having gone through all of that, and like I said, myself, who's mastered living with a brain injury for 24 years, there is no amount of money you could pay me to take the risk of making my brain injury even worse. And so, again, everyone agreed with me, and, of course, that's off the record because no doctor is willing to speak out because APRA will just strip them of their registration, whether it's valid or not. So no um, exemptions for you then? If it's yeah, no exemptions. So... I did the right thing. And from the very start, I've been trying to, you know, do the right thing, you know, try to do the, you know, the, do what they, what they tell you to do and you kind of do it in a civil and polite way. So I emailed the state government and asked for an exemption of which, again, I have an email. They basically said that the state government isn't giving any exemptions of any kind to work and that additionally, these are all based on federal standards. Now for... What, over two years we heard then, you know, Prime Minister Scott Morrison consistently saying this is a state issue. And then when you reach out to the state government and they tell you, no, this is a federal issue, 
you can imagine how extremely frustrating that is to me and hundreds of other people in this uh, rare kind of category. Okay, so keep going with, uh, so you can't get an exemption, so now you can't work, okay? Mm -hmm. So, can, by the way, have I, have, I done anything, have I done any tells yet? Have you been able to read my, my mind yet? How am I feeling? No, 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 no. Well, basically, I, I can tell that, you, you know, you're a sceptical person by nature, but that's something yeah. that anyone could really uh, claim from any kind of journalist. What I'd need is for you to share an anecdote or a personal story. Right. Okay. Um, because if you never elicit any emotion, there's no way that I can... I get understand it. what you're feeling. I'll try and do some. Yeah. All right, so, all right, so now you can't work. Um, and the interesting thing I found about why I wanted you on the show was the uh, predictive nature uh, that you mentioned mm. that um, corporate uh, that you do in your consulting work. What kind of things can you predict? I guess it's behavioral prediction based on patterns that your traumatized brain and now rewired mm. to be different from ours can see that we can't see. What are some of those things that you can see early and you can predict that we can't? Basically, one of the, the the common, I guess, you know, conditions, I shouldn't say symptoms, but people with brain injuries or, you know, people with autism or even people with like high functioning ADHD, we have something called hypervigilance. Now, we basically are tuned in to sense threat a lot earlier than other people. Now, if you if you see me in a crowd or if I'm out to dinner, I do this subconsciously, but my eyes are constantly darting. I'm assessing every single, every single threat. So when I hear something, you know, or see something on the news or hear a story, when I heard all these stories emerging, you know, out of 2019 where the bodies were piling up and this was happening and this was happening and it's the next black death, my brain, rather than react, I imagine, like everyone else's did, I immediately said, well, you know, what's the true reality behind this? What's causing it? What are the other factors? What do I need to be concerned about? So I'll give you an example, for instance. If someone comes to me and they say, you know, I want to quit smoking, you know, and this is a common one I get as part of my, you know, my complex problem solving. Normally they'll come to me after they've tried everything else. You know, they've tried the patches, they've tried the hypnosis, they've tried everything. And my first question will be, well, why do you smoke in the first place? You know, not just because of, you know, the nicotine or I'm addicted or I'm stressed, but I could spend hours with you kind of, you know, analysing why you do things or, you know, why you smoke or what causes the triggers of smoking. But it always comes back to if you have a very difficult life or if you have a very difficult job, you're not smoking because you need to smoke. You're smoking as a reaction to something that has caused you a negative impulse or you know, a negative behavioural trigger. So I will tell people often that is the consequence of quitting smoking better than the consequences of not doing anything or about your environment? Now, if it is your job that's causing you the stress, if you're not willing to leave the job or reassess the job or you know, change your perspective on the job, there's literally no reason for you to quit smoking because you're still going to be facing the same triggers and the same stress that caused the behavioural patterns in the first place. It would get so, worse, wouldn't it, because you don't have that smoking outlet anymore. Mm. So, yeah, obviously, you know, tradies love their smokos, for instance, but that's one of the things that 
when we talk about pattern recognition and we talk about, as I said, being hypervigilant to threat, you need to understand that the very first reason you started smoking is the very thing that's causing you smoking now. So your environment hasn't changed as much as just you've changed to your environment. Okay. Um, so, again, and reading from that when we talk about, you know, we talk about COVID or we talk about the mandates, we talk about lockdowns, we are by nature focused on what is happening right now and what will be the consequence of it. You know, for me, that was I am no longer allowed to work. So the consequence of that is not having an income. The consequence of that is, you know, all the, I guess, the emotional difficulties of that. But unless you understand why working is so important to begin with, you're not going to be able to sense the trigger that's causing your anxiety. So part of pattern prediction and, like I said, understanding one or improving one's ability to empathise is understanding how they got to that position in the first place. Um, and that, that's a roundabout saying way of saying that I need to know where you've been in order to predict where you're going. Hmm. I am fascinated. I'm just wondering whether we lean, I think about doing a personal story now to get mm. to selfishly get you to read me a little bit uh, before we go into some of the patterns you've observed with COVID. Uh, there's a lot of people suffering with addictions, cigarettes. Uh, for me, it was growing up with sugar, food. Uh, and clearly there's an addictive bio, a biochemical addictive element to sugar, which is under, um, under, underappreciated. But I think you're correct. The reason why I and many others would use a coping mechanism like, like gorging on sugar, not like my wife does, she can mm. enjoy it. But for us, you know, we, it's like alcoholic. The, the most similar problem I've seen to what I have with sugar is alcoholics who behave in the same way, but they use alcohol, use sugar. But yeah, you're saying that at the base of all of that, there is like some kind of childhood or trauma or something that we're we're using cigarettes or alcohol or sugar to, or some people use running. I wish I had that addiction, <laughs> but we're using we're using that thing to cover up for something, right? How can we get to the bottom of what that is and try and solve it? Is it possible to solve that rather than struggle against our addiction for our whole lives and manage our addictions? Mm. I guess we'd be going down quite a deep rabbit hole, and this is my funda fundamental issue with modern psychology, if you will, is that alcoholism is a great example because one of the common American, you know, treatment programs or is AA, you know, Alcohol Anonymous, yeah. in which ultimately you are just taking one vice and replacing it with another vice. So you're taking, like I said, your alcoholism and you're replacing it with religion. Right. Now, is, it, saying, is it religion? Is it? Uh, is that what they do in AA? I haven't been to AA. Well, but, well, I'm talking American AA. It's it's different yeah. everywhere you go. But the first step of AA is acknowledging that there's a higher power greater than yourself. Really? Oh. Yeah, and then and wow. you need to give yourself up to that higher power. So, okay. The idea is, it's like again using that reference. There's this huge fundamental difference between counselling in modern psychology and what I do. Right. Now, if you came to me and said, I need to quit drinking by any means necessary, I need to weigh up the pros and cons of your entire history, the pros and cons of everything I've observed and everything you've told me. And I might even say, well, it might be better for you to take up smoking or it might be better for you wow. to double down on the sugar or it might be better for you to wow. seek something else that can replace that because... 
as you as you alluded to correctly, your desire or impulse to gorge or to you know indulge or to you know consume one of your vices is because you have been programmed as a behavioural mechanism for survival. You know to to deal with what you're doing basically. In the case of sugar, sugar triggers dopamine, you know, endorphin rush, which basically distracts you from whatever it is you're feeling. But, you know, like we say that regardless of how much sugar you eat or how much sugar you don't eat, unless you address that original root cause, which, as you alluded to, nine times out of ten is some form of childhood trauma, um, it always comes down to a basic survival mechanism. So... Um, and this is this is something extremely morbid, mind you. This is this was some. I had a, had a colleague who came to me and said, "I'm going to lose my job if I don't take the jab, but I'm really concerned about adverse reactions. I'm really concerned about what could happen to me." And I said to him that, "Well, life is measured in time, and if you go out and have a wild bender and you drink, you know, twenty, you know, twenty cans of beer." Well, of course, you're going to recover, you know, tomorrow and you're going to go about your normal life. But that science essentially tells us has reduced your lifespan by X amount. Sure. Every time you take it, every time you take a drag of a cigarette, that's reduced it by another smaller amount. Now, your average human might live up to 80 years. I believe that's about the Australian um, current life expectancy. But if you're just going to be out every weekend destroying your body, can you really complain that you're worried about adverse reactions? Can you really complain that you're worried that your lifespan might be reduced by five years while you're pounding back, you know, cheeseburgers and you know, six smoking and drinking, for instance? So the idea is we need to be able to weigh that up constructively and on a personal level evaluate what's going to lead to the most greater good. And that's the fundamental issue with, you know, modern psychology is modern psychology is, the issue that's plaguing you right now is what we need to address. Right. But they very rarely address the reason that's causing you to have, I guess what we would say, a, a dependent uh, personality disorder, even you know, codependency, dependence, or even an alcohol or drug addiction, if that somewhat answers your question. Yeah, I'm just processing it as we say it and thinking it through in my own life. And I think, yeah, a lot of us watching because... Whatever your vice is, so for me, it's sugar and food, mm. right? So as you say, you get very stressed and you reach out for something. And that's what, what I do. But then you're right. When you get it and if you spend on a, go on a week, because sugar, you can go on a, on a month, you can go on a six-month-long mm. bender, you know, and just gain heaps of weight. It's just never fulfilling. It just never solves the problem. It's a distraction, like you say. And so you get to this empty place at the end and you... I'm starting to wonder in all areas of life, not just in, in, in eating, but there's there's got to be a way we can somehow zone in on those foundational core drivers that you mentioned. And I don't know if this is in your expertise to counsel someone through it, but certainly being aware of it and seeing it for what it is. You know, for example, I should see my sugar addiction for what it is, not just that magnums are awesome and they were on half price of coal, so I ate 12 the other night, there should be an awareness that, hang on, I'm acting out some kind of issue from decades ago mm. and it's going to keep happening with, if it's not magnums, it'll be something else. 
Exactly right, and and you know, Alex, I've I've worked with I've worked with people who've gone through motor vehicle accidents. I've worked with veterans coming back from the wars, and and PT PTSD, or, or now it's known as complex PTSD. That's where you have a, an associated trigger. Like for me, every time I hear a siren, I basically get flashbacks. You know, I, I get I get shivers, I get chills, um, and that's that's because I have a very distinctive and vivid memory of my trip from the pavement to the hospital. Mm. And I, I was conscious, and that was one of the reasons I'm still alive, mind you, because that's, um, and you'll see it in all the movies and TV shows, the number one thing to do is keep someone awake right. because the minute they go unconscious, it reduces their Glasgow coma scale chances of ever waking up again. So basically that's what it is. It's like PTSD is a consistently recurring set of circumstances it's a consistently recurring set of emotional triggers most of the time that's negative but theoretically if you could completely remove the trigger from that you could not necessarily cure is the wrong word but you could definitely help someone with ptsd well, um, is that you just want to disarm it a little bit take mm. some of the power is this uh does this relate at all to some of the research we've seen from that professor doctor person i want to say harvard but i'm not sure i think he's harvard who's investigating use of psychedelics and other drugs for ptsd and so on and they're mm. finding incredible results from as, as sometimes as small as one treatment uh of some of these things like um uh what's that what's that endogenous one in your brain you get with ayahuasca dmt dimethyltryptamine mm. yeah. yeah things like that is there any connection what, what's going on there do you have any info on that uh, yes and no. I think from from my my research and, and my involvement that a lot of it is if you're in the acute phase or if you're long recovering. The acute phase is anywhere between days to weeks to months, depending on the type of injury. But we now know that you know, thanks to modern medicine, that permanent PTSD or permanent trauma actually begins to change the way your brain looks, changes your gray matter, changes your brain chemistry. So. In the acute phase, those things can be very effective. You know, let's say someone's just gotten back off duty, you know, they're, they're, they're back in land. You need to create, as you said, an immediate separation between cause and effect. You need to create an immediate separation. And that's why um, psychedelics, even cannabis to some extent, because they, they work by disconnecting you know, your physical mind to more of your spiritual mind. I don't know if spiritual is the right word, but that as you're psychedelic, that, um, you know, almost astral projection-like state where you're essentially removing yourself from your body. So, And that breaks the cycle of yeah. PTSD a little bit. Okay. And, so but not, not in a chronic case. Once no, not in a chronic case. Now, take, for instance, um, mushrooms, for example. Yes. People routinely describe going on these trips and they say that you see lights and you see understandings yeah. and you get a greater you know, understanding of the, the spiritual world, if you will. But that's not so much a neurochemistry or, a, um, I guess, neuroplasticity issue where you're you know, rewiring your brain or changing it, but rather everything to do with PTSD is about threat assessment. Right. It is about you hearing a clack or a crick or a sound which triggers that threat assessment. So you immediately withdraw in and you, you know, put up your defence mechanisms. You guard your hands, you close your body, you retract into yourself. But 
once you realize the concept of threat can be changed, yes. the concept of threat can be adapted or manipulated or rewired, suddenly it's no longer a threat. Um, that'd be a kind of roundabout way of, like, you know, ex exposure therapy for people with phobias. You know, if you're, like, arachnophobic and, you know, basically you, you keep shoving a spider in front of someone. Um, and this is how I actually I got, over, you know, mainly got over my arachnophobia is, um, you know, my wife and I, we were doing Halloween de decorations. She bought this huge bag of plastic spiders. Mm. Um, and just as a prank, you know, we've been going for about two years now with this consistent prank. It's just basically hiding plastic spiders everywhere. And basically you put them everywhere and we've got one that's literally just lives in our shower. We hung him up and he just lives there Yuck. now. Yeah. But the more you see it and the more you're exposed to it, it's not that your brain has changed your belief of what a spider is. Because, mm. yeah, some spiders could actually be venomous, but 99% of them are dangerous. It's just it triggers that primal fight or flight response. But if you can disconnect your mind from that fight or flight response to then assess the threat with logic, to assess the threat with, well, logically I can just walk away from this thing. Logically I'm safe. Logically this can't do anything. So we need to put a wedge between your current state of mind and your trigger, which is your threat sense, put a wedge in between it where you begin to actually stop and reassess that threat. Yeah, so with the spiders, right, you're seeing plastic ones and so your your nervous system's coming down now because I guess you're mm. operating more out of your cortex and you're not jumping all the time because there's plastic spiders everywhere in your house. Sounds <laughs> mm. horrible. But when you see a real spider now, mm. I guess what, what would the, the ideal would be that you see a real tarantula in your shower and mm. you don't react and then you realise it's real, it moves, mm. and then you still don't react? Like you just well, no, no, of course, that's that again, and you're exactly right. You're, you're pinpointed on the head. I will not touch that spider, I will not go within if it's a let's say a real tarantula. I'll get my, my wife to deal with it. Um, but the idea is I won't come into the room and feel like and freeze okay. up. I'll see it, I'll register it. It's and, and that's what we always talk about the, this concept of bravery. Bravery yeah. is not ignoring a threat, bravery is not just blindly running into something bravery is assessing the threat and then overcoming that threat right. so when i see the spider i won't immediately jump and trigger that fight or flight because i've exposed myself to the the trigger i've exposed myself to that chemical impulse that makes me flee now that you know because we know that when your adrenal gland kicks on you just go you know when you can hear that that gunshot you just go it's it's automatic it's instinctual. You, your brain turns off and you run. Yes. And in that moment, you can't properly assess threat. In that moment, you can't logically analyse patterns. You can't logically analyse your feelings, its feelings, you know, whether it's right to stomp on the spider, for example. But what you can do is create a clear separation between, as you said, I don't want to treat people after they've binged, you know, like I said, you've, you've eaten all, all that sugar and then you're sitting there thinking, why did I do this? Or why aren't I stopping? You know, as you're eating, you know you should stop, but you don't. You're in that fight or flight moment where mm. logic isn't a part of the situation. Right. What we need to do is drive a wedge in there 
So you don't have that sudden impulse, you don't have that sudden threat reaction. And then you can, you know, you're still afraid of the spider. It's not like you, know, you overcome your fear of spiders. That's a completely different problem in itself. Sure. Okay. So can we go then? Because this is so fascinating. This is a really good foundational mm. understanding of, of I don't know, behavioral psychology. I don't know, but yeah. how we think and how we respond. Mm. So now, wow, gold mine, last two, two years, I think we're more than two years now, two and a half mm. years. You must have been watching just, the most crazy movie you've ever seen ever. 100%, 100%. And that's that's what I've been so adamant about everything I'm working on. And I want to preface it with this. It's just when I make predictions or when I share my, my theories with, with people, with the public or on social media, it's never been about creating fear or creating anxiety or stressing people out. It's this idea that, I recognised this was going to be a problem. You could have presented it, you could have prevented it if you took action, but you didn't. So now obviously I get vindication, but I'm obviously more worried about it. So as I, as I said to you in, in the, in the pre-materials, even, you know, early midway through last year, I was alerting people, whether it be the Human Rights Commission, whether it be the Disability Royal Commission, and I said, I am identifying a pattern where you are creating more stress than you are hope. You are creating more fear and anxiety than you are joy. Now, we know from our understanding, or is it here? I just want to make sure I get it right. Psychoneuroimmunology. It is basically a study developed over the last couple of decades where it's identifying how your psychological mindset directly affects your immune system. So they've proven that people who have chronic stress, you know, whether it's chronic depression, chronic stress, PTSD, even just a stressful life, you know, you work nine to five, you come home, kids are screaming, you know, everything's, you know, it's high stress environment. We now know that that negatively affects your immune system. Yes. yes. So when I saw, and, and this is something that I speak with a lot of American colleagues about, and that Americans have had a lot of experience with what's known as PSYOPs or psychological operations, oh, right. whether it's um, MKUltra or the Tuskegee experiment. It's basically government-sanctioned experiments on the people. Which are now, so, so just to point out, these are now well-documented and well-accepted mm -hmm. things like MKUltra, which yeah. was a CIA. CIA-sanctioned experiment, yes. Yeah, okay. So people, people, they, they have them, that connotation of it being a, a conspiracy theory. But no, these are real. Even President Clinton came out in the 90s and did a full-on apology to all the experiments they were doing on the African-Americans in the 30s, I think it was. So... Even, you know, Bay of the Pigs and during the, um, the Cold War, they have this long history of running PSYOPs and I could share the link later, but the Canadian government were caught and actually admitted that they were doing this. We have our own here. The, the army was involved. It was a psychological operation. But I basically saw all these patterns and I said, you are filling people's mind with chronic stress, chronic anxiety, in which you are providing no viable solution." Now, back then, even as early as June, July last year, I was telling people, we're going to see more heart attacks, we're going to see more strokes, we're going to see more DV, we're going to see more suicides, we're going to see all of this. It could be prevented. 
And now fast forward to now, the Australian Bureau of Statistics is telling us we've had like a 20% increase in excess deaths all over the world. Yeah, but are you seeing those things, uh, were you predicting you were going to see an increase in those morbid factors as a result of the, uh, not not the vaccine, we haven't got to that yet, just in terms of stress and and psychological trauma? So an, an excess death is basically all of the deaths not related to, you know, COVID, all the naturally occurring ones, not necessarily naturally occurring. That's a, another science term. But, yeah, basically more people are dying than they should have or they expected to. Okay. And that's totally unrelated to COVID. It's totally unrelated to anything COVID-related. So it isn't from- one evidence that COVID is real and dangerous and horrible and blah, 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 mm-hmm. is an increase in excess deaths? Wouldn't that be evidence of how bad COVID is? And if we had no increased excess deaths, then COVID's not that dangerous. Well, no, no, because here's where we we know there's there's plenty of um, like take you know um, Sweden for example, uh, they believe in what's known as laissez-faire, which is a French term for let the people manage themselves, and we trust that you'll make the right decision. So they didn't have mandates. They had very little lockdowns. They had very little you know government kind of authority placed upon them. And they didn't see the same excess deaths as anywhere else. You see, these excess deaths, are, and as we know right now, New Victoria would know this same as everyone else, ambulance delays. It's now two hours to see an ambulance. All the people who missed appointments because they couldn't have gone to the hospital. Yes. So all of these excess deaths are directly linked and caused by the government's response. Right. And I'd go on. I'd go on record to say that. You know, like I said, I'd, I'd stand in front of a court and say that that these excess deaths, because we're seeing the same pattern in every single country yes. that brought about these serious mandates, and looking at the ABS statistics here, they said that Victoria was the worst out of Australia, and we know Victoria had the longest lockdown of anywhere in the world. But hang on, now you you just use the word mandate. So are we crossing over now into a, a because we haven't yet talked about killing people with the vaccines, mm. more people are dying. Are, are we talking about that as well, or are you keeping that separate? Governments no, have been so killing we're... people before so, the vaccine. Yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll rewind. So midway through last year, I was saying we are going to see excess deaths caused by your response, caused by the lockdowns, sure. caused by the mandates, caused by the... Um, and I, I wrote a paper and I, I shared this to a lot of the people in the academic community, again, including the um, Australian Human Rights Commission and the Royal Commission, basically saying that they are conditioning the public. They are using psychological conditioning or psychological operations to condition the public into a vulnerable, fear-induced state. Yes. Like the, we, we saw the patterns, we saw the words, we saw the framing Everything they were doing was designed to lower your immune system. Uh, okay, well, hang on. So I was saying yes because I remember the Black Death bus in the UK, mm. where it was literally a bus painted black and going around saying you will die, uh, saying COVID could kill you, go back to your homes, or scary yeah. stuff. But then you just said now, at the end of your sentence, designed to make us sick. So here's the. How, this is where I struggle to follow along. How do you? How can you say it was deliberately designed to make us sick when it could simply be political opportunism, opportunism, mm. uh, emergent factors like Matthias Desmet's um, mass formation psychosis is an emergent phenomenon, but you're saying designed. 
They wanted yes. a thick. Yes. So basically, I've been saying this from the start, and again, and people think this is one of my more fringe beliefs, but we look at how they specifically coordinated this. Like, as, as I'm sure you're familiar, mainstream media got 100% tax rebates throughout all of this. So as part of that, well, they would well, to been, be clear. Sorry, to be clear, they didn't get hundred percent tax. They got a, um, I can't remember what it's called, but their license fees or something like that. Yeah, big big I, wins I, for I, them, mm. but yeah, yeah. Go on. So basically, that would have been conditional on certain parameters. Like I, I, I genuinely believe that, and and this is how I frame it all. That if this was, and they're coming to to coming back full circle to COVID. If this was about public health and saving lives, why were there no mandates or even a single suggestion anywhere in Australia for people to lose weight? Now the we number know one driver of yeah COVID exactly hypertension and obesity. All the people who die from COVID, about 88 percent of them either have hypertension or are obese. So if this was about public health, why wasn't smoking banned? Why wasn't fast food banned? Why wasn't losing weight banned? Why wasn't vitamin D provided en masse to every single citizen? You see, so I identified all these, as we said, patterns or what I called, you know, red flags at the time where it's they are doing everything they can to cause stress and not doing a single thing to encourage people's immune systems. Now, when we talk about the lockdowns, Lockdowns, you don't get sunlight. You're only allowed limited time to exercise and they were deliberately isolating you from friends and family. All three of those things will cause a serious detriment to not only your mental health, but your immune health. Now, what they should have done from day one is basically said, get out in the sun, spread joy, spread happiness. Let's build your immune system through good living and healthy living standards and obviously go along with that, whether it be the masks or the mandates or the QR codes. So all over Australia and essentially all over the world, all we saw was negative encouragement and not a single bit of positive encouragement. Now, if that was happening in, let's say, North Korea, well, you know, that's a, a, poor, a poor example, but somewhere where you, you traditionally or stereotypically, you know, wage these authoritarian governments, that would make sense. But in first world countries, whether it be UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, United States, there was never a single effort to encourage a positive mindset, which is, again, the psychoneuroimmunology. This is well-proven, well-established. Not a single measure to improve anyone's holistic well-being. Uh, let me fire yeah. the flag for Trump for a second. Mm. Uh, he's probably the only one I saw get up towards the end of his presidency and he just kicked COVID and he did say, you will get through this. We will get through. You can beat this, your body, mm. you know, get to be healthy. And so that was incredible because all the other leaders were doom and gloom. Hey, you're underestimating COVID. It could kill mm. you. Don't be blase. But he said, no, no, you got this. We can do this. So, yeah. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. So, so basically that's what they, you know, they say that's like how many coincidences before you say it's a fact. You know, okay, how many, yeah. No. So hang on, we've got a problem here because mm. I don't have a problem with what you're you're saying. Look, just can I just say broadly, people 
need to understand why a journalist is skeptical. I think they're so, I'm so not a journalist, okay, mm-hmm. I'm some dude, but journalists, we've got this bad view of them, like they're there to get you and screw you. And often they are because they're all messed up. But a traditional journalist, which I would be more similar to, I'm just trying to find the truth. And when I when I test you, um, this is mainly for the audience's benefit. I know you're fine yeah. with this. But when I test you and say, hey, how do you know that's true? You could be wrong here. It's not to screw you and push you, shoot you mm. down in flames. It's to test what you're saying. Is it real? And if it's real, holy smokes, wow, we found something real. So that would be just as pleasurable for me to find that you're mm. completely right. But let me challenge you. I feel like you are ascribing uh, uh, design to these things where a simpler explanation, like the profit motive, would explain what you've described, this negativity around the world to push um, vaccines. Why does it have to be this big evil government plan to make us all sick? Right. You, you, you said it yourself. You picked up on it immediately, and this is this is more people are waking up to. It's literally supply and demand. And there's people like Dr Fauci in the States who were saying way back 2018, 2019, that if you create enough of a threat, if you create enough of fear, that will be seen with the investors. Because we now know that COVID itself was, you know, a product of gain-of-function research. We know that it was edited on a genome level. And we also know that the vaccine themselves were given DOD prototype approval. Mm. Like, we, we know these things. They are now fact. You can, you can, you can, anyone can look them up. So they knew exactly how COVID killed. But how do you drive up demand for your product? Vaccines. Yeah, you do your product is vaccines. How do you drive by cases, case numbers? Right. So basically, the more you can lower immune systems, the more you can get cases in, in kids, younger adults, people in their 20s and 30s. So basically, the jabs aren't going to sell themselves. They need the cases to go along with it. They need the fear and the, the psychology of demand. Right. And that's essentially what they've been doing from the very start. That they, all, the, all the photos of the dead bodies piling up, all the photos, you know, the, the shock and gore and the, and the doomsday predictions were all about generating a demand for a product, which, mind you, and we, we know this partially from the leaked contracts, that our government spending what like you know eight nearly eight billion dollars on vaccines, we had to pay for them all up front, whether we yep. use them or not. That's right. So basically, you need to put enough fear into the public to justify you ordering 140 million doses of something. And a country of 25 million. Exactly. So it's seven shots for everyone. The only way you can do that is by creating. Obviously, you create a virus which is hypervirulent, which that's why they call it chimeric virus. That's what they, they, the original one they took because they knew it would mutate very quickly. And you need everyone's immune systems to get down because, and I, I don't want to go down the whole rabbit of PCR tests, but as we were previously discussing, that's what the court case in the um, International Criminal Court is all about because even the creator of uh, the PCR test, I think it was Kerry, Kerry Miller or Mueller, he basically said, if you run enough cycles, you can find anything. And so there's been, especially with the rat tests, we identified very quickly, they can't tell the difference between a flu and COVID. And if you run enough cycles, you can find COVID within the flu. 
So the plan was, again, this is just purely my opinion based on my observations, is you want to make the population as susceptible as possible to increase case numbers, as susceptible as possible to anything, to common cold, to flu, to any kind of, any kind of virus that you can then put under. Now, of course, people immediately, you know, be again, I'm going down the rabbit hole, I'm going, you know, too much down, but the precedent we use is the difference between died with and died from COVID. The CDC have come out and said only about 6% of people actually died from COVID. Out of the, the 1.5 million people now that who is reporting on, only about six of them. For us, that'll be even less. So you've got a virus that doesn't really kill anyone but is extremely transmissible being spread in a population that has no immunity. It's basically a recipe just for pure profits. And that's all this has ever been. It's from the very beginning. It's just been a giant money laundering operation. Okay, so the base of this is is money, profit. Yes, okay. Of I course. think a lot of people can buy that. Mm. You say, of course, but some people are saying it's depopulation mm. and all sorts of things. All right. Now, if, if if the base is profit, how is it? It's so hard to keep humans to keep a secret, mm. right? So when you see down the chain, down the chain, from Pfizer down to the World Health Organization and Bill Gates, mm. and then finally down to ScoMo and down to Daniel Andrews or, or, or Anastasia Palaszczuk, and then finally down to the to the, the media who push the same line, and then mm. down to uh, the community who says, do the right thing, why won't you get vaccinated, and your GP. And so it keeps going down. At somewhere along that chain, there has to be a disconnect because you've got multiple motives and incentive mm. structures along the way. So, for example, I know a journalist in... Uh, I can't remember if it's News Corp or Channel 10. Anyway, like a mainstream. Mm. I went to law school and journalism school with her and she um, she honestly believes it. And she's had heart, she's had terrible adverse events and she keeps on going back for more doses. Mm. And she's saying things like, it's worth, no matter how many adverse events I get, it's worth it to keep everyone safe. So they're just, their brains are checked mm. out. But she's not being paid by, I know, I know her. She's not mm. being paid by Pfizer. She's struggling on a small wage. Mm. So, so look, it's not, how, how is that a profit motive all the way down the chain to our local GP who seems to be shilling for Pfizer as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Well, we know on a, on a GP level that they get, you know, kickbacks for pres- prescribing certain you know, types of drugs. That's been going on for a long time now. But I remember discussing this, and I've said this to a lot of people, that like a pyramid or a cascade, all you need is one person at the top to know what's truly going on. They give the order. And then the next people need to justify or create a solution to fulfill that order. And that passes all the way down. Now, I, you know, I don't, I don't mind what people call me. They're, they're welcome to express themselves. But why would our national cabinet, cabinet have secret meetings with no transparency whatsoever mm. and then the new quote-unquote opposition government mm. come into power and then Albanese isn't going to reveal those secret meetings? You left out a bit. You left out a bit. Anthony Albanese railed against his denied Mm. FOI request last year to release NAPCAP Mm. documents, and now he's in there. Nothing to see here. Yeah, exactly. And he, uh, the reason I I theorise there is that he needs to protect all the Labor premiers because they were in on it. They, the entire national cabinet, had to be in on it. Now, I don't want to name names, obviously, for defamation, but 
This is one of the examples I use. And if I'm trying to explain this to someone, I'll do it this way. We've seen Pfizer's clinical documents. We've seen their applications to the government. Nowhere in that did they say it stops transmission or that it grants immunity. They never said that. It was the politicians and the health experts who were trying to sell it said that. Now, we know there's a certain member of, like, he recently retired. Greg Hunt. Pre- uh, yeah, okay, you can say. Yeah. yeah. Look, look, Greg, so you didn't get defamed. Look, Greg Hunt, we're not saying anything crazy, but Greg Hunt came out and said that they're 100% effective. Exactly. And th- there's this disconnect between Pfizer. You would think Pfizer would come out and say, look, buy my stuff, it's 100%, mm. and then he would parrot it, but that's not what happened. Yeah. And we've got, I don't know about you, but we've got our, we've got our health minister and our old show who both used the term immunity. Yes. Now, that is, by every sense of the word, fraud. It's not some conspiracy theory. It's literally a crime because there are no studies. Pfizer never claimed it. No one said it gave total immunity. And yet they did through consistent TV programming and all their marketing materials. And as I said, I'll, I'll send you this photo here. And it's a photo I got from, you know, a, a family friend who they, they bought into it and they wanted to vaccinate their kids. And basically the photo, it's, it's you know, um, Buzz, Buzz Lightyear orientated. And it basically says to immunity and beyond. Propaganda. So you're, yeah, you're not only telling the parents, but you're also telling the kids that they're now immune to this. Now, we combine that with the recent article from The Age um, mentioning Dan Andrews trying to push the fourth jab mm. in which he said himself that um, the, the nurse herself made it very clear to me that a number of COVID outbreaks in the hospital had been by the staff bringing the virus in unknowingly. So if that isn't a reason to end the mandates right now, I don't know what is. Like he himself admitting that there is is no literally, there's no immunity. Mm. There's no stopping of transmission. So none of it makes sense. Oh, Bill Gates said this too. You seen that on the World Economic Forum last month? Yeah. He basically said, and he said he was sad about it. You know, was sad that they weren't more effective. Should be sad. It's his vaccine. Mm. Of course he's sad. And that's basically, and so all you need to do is get, obviously the the prime minister and all the premiers to agree in secret we're all going to get rich and then you have people like whoa whoa, whoa, whoa. that's a new claim you just made 100% so, so hang on because when we were talking about the division of incentive down that mm. chain to down to the journalist who's not getting paid but someone's getting paid somewhere up in the chain you're mm. including um, prime minister and premiers as as um getting financial kickbacks yes i I guarantee speculating. Yeah, speculating. I, I, I speculate in a guaranteed way <laughs> that if we looked into their bank accounts, they would all have at least 10 plus million dollars that's unexplained. Now, the reason I wanted to, to get into politics is to get some form of access to this, but we all know that I'm um, backtracking to you know previous all the drama, politicians have access to what's called a blind trust. Right. In which they quote unquote don't know where the money comes from, but as part of the party, they're able to do it. Right. Now, this is how I would do it. Let's say I'm an evil criminal mastermind, right? Yes. So you're the CEO of Pfizer. Go on. Okay. I'm the, yeah, the, <laughs> they're the most criminal organization in yeah. history, like literally proven, before yeah, the yeah. pandemic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's proof. So basically, 
uh, you know, he wants to put, you know, microchips in medication so he knows that you're complying when you're taking your medication. These people are just, it's, it's, it's greed at its ultimate level. But there's nothing in the rules that says Pfizer can't donate to a political party. Okay. They can't give the money directly to these people. Because like that's, and again, if we if we look at the leaked acquisition contract that came out of some of the European countries, did you ever see that? The, basically the Brazilian one? Yeah, Brazil said, no, we don't want to borrow that because you want our military infrastructure. That's right. Um, that was, that. I, sorry to interrupt you. I just, I need to help you a bit here. It's not just you saying that. Everyone, this is real. Mm. The, the Brazilian government contract to acquire, I can't remember if it was Pfizer or AstraZeneca or whatever, but one of the vaccines, literally had written in there in the event of default that they could acquire um, uh, the, the the national assets. That, like a private company called Pfizer, I think it was Pfizer, takes mm. ownership of sovereign assets of mm. a nation. That's did you see? Did, did you see this? That um, it would have happened a few months ago, and they tried to wipe it under the radar, but I had an inside contact that um, Pfizer um, requested from the SEC to be deregistered, delisted. Is this real? Um, I mean, I, I, I think so because they submitted okay. the forms. Okay. I, can, I can send you that. But, yeah, basically they got paid and now they're about to cash out. And obviously oh, okay. they'll they'll reinvent themselves under a new name, but I don't know how tax law works in the States. But So if you go back to the blind trust, because I'm mm-hmm. having trouble believing this um, uh, speculation that the politicians got paid, because even if a party gets paid through a blind trust, there are party rules about how to spend money. And it's hard, more importantly, it's hard to hide. So let's mm. say they buy Anastasia Palaszczuk a new yacht. <laughs> they give mm. her $20 million. Her lifestyle is going to change. Her family members are going to, lifestyle is going to change. Mm. You're going to be able to trace this through investigative journalism. Yeah, but who's going to do it? That's my point. You Michael, think about this. The, the, the judges... Yeah. The police commissioners and all the highest authoritative people within the country weren't mandated. Remember when the Victorian judges said it's unconstitutional for us to be mandated to take the jab? Mm, None of I them do. took the jab. So is it that far-fetched to say they cut a deal that said, because we know we've got parliamentary privilege, who literally within Australia has the authority to order ScoMo to show us his bank account? I want you to really, I want all Australians to think about that. Who literally has the power to do that? Now, for all my research and for all intensive purposes, no one. No one has the actual, unless, of course, he's indicted on a crime, but who's going to investigate it? Yeah, okay. I see what you're saying. I, I just feel like we're in a little bit of shaky ground because we're we're using deduction. We're using yeah, of course, de- yeah. We're eliminating all possibilities and then saying, well, there's only one remaining, mm. so it must be. But that's not proof positive. That's no, of course not. No. And, that's, and, that, and that's what it is. From the very beginning, so much of this has been incredibly difficult to prove. So much of it is nearly impossible because they have been planning this for a very long time. We know that through precedents that every every eight to you know seven eight years they cycle through whether it's you know swine flu or bird flu and or the original SARS variant back in two thousand eight was it and each time they've tried to you know trigger this process it's not a new thing that they're trying to do it's only with the obviously escalation of the World Health Forum that they're able to pull this off which really makes you think that you know with that 
scale of planning. And mind you, only recently they're starting to acknowledge and admit that it came from a lab. Like minus two years ago, your career was ruined if you said that. But now all of a sudden when more information, more research comes out, all of a sudden what was considered conspiracy is becoming fact. So it is only in retrospect that we're able to prove any of this. But as I said, my, my greatest issue from the onset is that I've been consistently making predictions accurately. Can you tell us about some of those? Yes, yeah, so I've got the, uh, let me whip it up for you. So the, the first would have been the excess deaths. And again, these are all made six months beforehand, you know, at least six to eight months the excess deaths, I basically warned people that the original mass documentation would lead to QR codes and mandates and check-ins. No one believed me then. I basically, again, warned everyone I could about the psychological conditioning that would contribute to more excess deaths and contribute to what I referred to as increased hostility towards the vulnerable population. And we see that now, you know, youth crimes on the rise. And, again, these aren't necessarily causation, you know, they're not necessarily directly linked. But another one was eight months before they publicly acknowledged it, I was requesting information in regards to how the jab affected menstrual cycles. And we now know that the jab does actually affect the uh, the lining of the uterus. Again, adverse reaction, if you will. But again, I was trying to warn everyone about that, that, you know, this is actually affecting fertility. And a recently study came out that it said that it does indeed affect sperm count. You know, there's now evidence to suggest that this is, affects sperm count, which again, literally affects your fertility when they said it didn't. Thank that, God this is hosted by Odyssey, is all I can say, this this interview. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm loving it. I'm enjoying it. I appreciate you having on no. here. I just can't believe we can't even say this on uh, YouTube, Facebook, anywhere. No, they would ban on, me, ban oh, me yeah, like half, half an hour ago. I, I've, I've had my, my accounts deleted simply for sharing studies with no context, just the studies themselves. And so go um, on with your predictions. Yep. So um, what do we got? September last year, I predicted that a war would break out um, earlier in this year. My original money was between India and China. But what I was telling people, and again, I was trying to get the word out that it was a proxy war to cover up the adverse reactions. It was a proxy war designed to take people's minds off things. So I said it had to be either China or Russia. It had to be one of the quintessential anti-American enemies. And now we know that both, you know, Vlad and President Zelensky are both WEF. We know that the Russians are very strategic in their particular invasion. We know that a lot of that is, I refer to it as a proxy war. It is is very real for certain parts, but by any means it's not a real invasion as we typically would say. Are you Um, saying that the Ukraine invasion is helping to cover up the uh, vaccine adverse events? That was, that was my original theory back then. Um, now, if you ask me right now what the reasons for were, I'd be a bit more cloudy. But also back in that time, I was saying that that was partly the reason why they would do it because it had to be something that dragged us into it. Now, we were never going to get put boots on the ground, but we had to somehow be involved to somehow use it as a, a divisive device. And then, of course, earlier in January this year, I predicted 
what would happen with the adverse reactions. Now, the biggest thing about that is this was pretty common knowledge, but what I was telling people, and I can almost guarantee that everyone listening at home and, and yourself might have heard this if you know people who are double or triple jabbed, they're saying, you know, I'm, I'm catching more colds or the flu feels worse than ever, more people are taking sick leave. Now, we knew very early on that negative efficacy and immune erosion was occurring. So basically, so much of my predictions earlier in January were we're going to see increase of heart attacks, which has come true. We're going to see increase of strokes, soft tissue cancers. We're going to see complete immune um, deregulation. And the other, other, one of my favourites was um, there's a Nobel Prize winning scientist, Luke Montagu. He basically made claims that after the third boost, you know, check yourself for HIV because there's a good chance your immune system's just gutted. Now, they slandered him and ruined his career, right. but all over the world we are now seeing a massive expansion of case numbers in the highly vaccinated countries, and we're also seeing monkeypox, which in turn looks exactly like adult shingles. What's wrong with monkeypox? What's wrong with shingles? Why do you do this? Well, because basically, and again, the fact checkers have already you know, covered this up. The fact check has already taken care of it. Yeah. But skin conditions yeah. like monkeypox, like re-emerging adult shingles are one of the first signs of HIV. They want as the first signs of your immune system being completely gutted. Okay. And are you saying that's as gutted because of the, vac the MRA? Yes, vaccine? of course. Yeah. Okay. So here's a problem. I know someone mm. very, very well who got adult shingles for the first time ever, mm. completely unvaccinated. So there can be some false positives in that sense. Like you, people might look and say, see, shingles, mm. jabs are doing it, but she has not had a vaccine. Mm. So. Yeah, well, but like I said, you've got it. And that's, and that's, I guess, one thing I keep coming back to is, and, and that's why I believe there hasn't been any indictments yet. That's why I believe no one's been arrested because if you were trying to pull this off, you would have had contingency plans. You would have had avenues to cover things up. Now, we're seeing it all over the TV, whether it's adult shingles, whether it's the emergence of sudden adult death syndrome. That's ridiculous. We had um, the Queensland government coming out and saying over the next 15 years there's going to be a 50% increase in cancer, but they didn't explain why. Okay. So we're seeing predictive conditioning already occur. I even, I even read an article late, it would have been early this year, where they were saying that snow shoveling increases your chance of heart attacks. Oh, for goodness sake. So basically the media is just blanket covering people to prepare for all these conditions that are caused by immune dysregulation. There's a 25-year-old athlete who died, I saw in news mm. today, of natural causes. Mm. <laughs> natural causes yeah. at 25. <laughs> okay. Well, we saw, that, we saw that um, the Miami Open had a record number of injuries. The Boston Marathon had five people go down with cardiac arrests. So we're going to see it. And that's what I said in my, my future predictions. Hey, um, hang on. But before we go to future predictions, I definitely want to hear them at length. But you've just covered off your past predictions, right? Yeah, that's How most of them, yeah. Yeah. How do you know when you're doing, if you're predicting, especially because you don't rant, you don't get out of, a Ouija board or mm. a stick and, you know, you're actually using your knowledge of behavioural psychology. Mm. Um, 
how do you know you're not just doing a John Edwards? Do you know John Edwards used yeah, to talk yeah, yeah. to dead people? Such a such a fraud, man. Mm. I've seen I've seen um, him do it. I've seen Christians do it in churches. Mm. I've seen just people. You know, I'm just really feeling like there's someone in your family that you're really close to. You know, and then I'm waiting for you to give me a sign that yeah, it's my grandmother, my mom, my sister, something. So how do you know you're not just predicting things that would have happened anyway? Because you talked about some of those predictions you rattled off. I'm mm. thinking half of them or more in my head were like, well. It's a bit hard to lose a prediction saying there will be a world war. There's going to be one at some point. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and and that's and that's that's my greatest issue. And I've talked about this to a lot of people that since all of my expertise and all of my education and everything I've worked up into my career has been focused on my lived experience, I've never got the academic qualification. I've never got the PhD. I've never done that. So with that, you're having to overcome a lot of things, but. What I guess the difference between, you know, a charlatan and my predictions is that I provided the specific causal evidence. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't basically just make blanket claims. I say because of this particular pattern, I believe this will happen. Uh, now You're extrapolating. I see. Yeah, so basically yeah. that doesn't prove I'm right or wrong. Right. That doesn't prove what I said came to reality, it proves that what, well, again, proves is a, a kind of an obscure word there. I believe what it demonstrates is my ability to detect a pattern right. that others may have missed. Okay. And, that, and that's right from the onset in, in regards to my ability to detect patterns that other people may miss is that I just want credit you know, in a kind of academic sense that, you know, here's someone who is very good at predicting patterns based on observable scientific data. And that's what this has been about because I've read mountains of papers, mountains of journals, mountains of news stories. Okay. So then shall we go to your future predictions? Mm, of yeah. course. Yeah. So I'd love to hear it um, however you want to tell it really, mm. but I'd really be interested in hearing that causal uh extrapolation like because so i don't just want to hear hey we're probably going to have a comet hit the earth in three years time mm-hmm. i want to hear your thought process like i'm seeing this happen matt and so i think this will happen and then this happened and ultimately it result in a comet hitting the earth in 2023 because yep. then i can follow you in your logic mm-hmm. that's exactly right so um one of my my main ones and i'm, I'm trying to to get this out that we're approaching our flu season which is august and september And we know based on what we consider is immune deregulation and basically a reduction in people's immune system, which is white T cells. So if the HIV or the negative efficacy theory proves true, that something, whatever the cause may be, which I'm saying it's most likely the jab, but it could just be, as I said, all the conditioning, all the fear and anxiety and the the um the negative chronic stress, but I'm predicting we'll see a 300 in percent increase in flu deaths, and the reason is this, this season in Australia, this season, so basically around the world. Well, it's already happening around the world. Oh, okay, because they've had their winter. Yeah. yeah, so basically, um, most of the American, you know, the highest peak numbers were during their winter, 
which yeah. was like, you know, Christmas time now, the white Christmas, that's when everyone was dying. But So 300% increase in flu deaths in Australia, New Zealand uh, in the in our flu yeah. season. Yeah. Yeah. So basically 300% sounds a lot. Um, and, you know, you talk about these numbers when you say 20% excess deaths. Australia per year has about 160,000 deaths. That's that's the that's the consistent. So, an additional five thousand people mm. in the grand scheme of twenty five million doesn't seem like much, but we're talking above what is considered the normal people. You know, the normal amount of people who die from the flu. Mm. So basically, the reason for that is because obviously it's stripped away people's immune systems, mm-hmm. but more so. No one is developing any immunity. That's, and that's, that's, the, that's the tricky thing, and that's, that's what basically I factor it in, that we knew based on UK surveillance data, and, again, their government said, you know, you can't, this is not what we're saying, which is you may observe. They basically came out and said this is not what we're saying. But they, are, they basically proved in their serology that if you take the jab before catching COVID, you will never develop as many antibodies as someone who never actually, uh, who sorry, who caught the um, natural infection themselves. So someone like myself who has natural immunity, my antibody level will always be higher than someone who was triple jabbed and hadn't caught the virus. And they basically proved that through blood tests. So at what point, sorry, at what point in time there though? Because I, I, I understand what you're saying. But just for full context, I don't know if this is correct, but the data mm. I've seen that the, the uh, injected have far in excess of the antibody numbers for a very, very short period, mm. two, two weeks or whatever it is, more than natural immunity. Mm. And then it wanes to way yeah. below. So that's, we're agreeing on that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, basically within that, yeah, that, that initial extremely high, you know, the um, high, high period, but from that point, for the rest of their life, that's that's what I'm kind of occurring, that for the rest of their life, their immunity will never be able to reach what it previously once was. So it is a permanent reduction in their immunability. Now, this is, I, I can't prove this because I don't have the scientific background. I can't prove this because I haven't been in the lab. This is purely guesswork, again, based on patterns that I've observed. But... There was basically what we're seeing is that a lot of the adverse reactions in the coronavirus itself, it can take a very heavy toll on the liver. Mm. And basically that's what HIV does. It really destroys your liver. And as such, if you have a compromised liver, which, again, could or couldn't be happening right now, your natural immune system to other viruses also begins to lower. So normally pre-jab, if you caught the flu, your antibody response would be at 100%. But I'm arguing for this particular flu season and all future flu seasons that your immunity will never be as good as it once was. And the red flag I say is because everyone I'm talking to who's had the jabs are saying, I've never had a flu like this. You know, I've never had been struck down this bad by a flu. I've normally got a great immune system. I'm normally very resistant to common colds and flu. So 
we're already seeing people complaining that these flus are much worse than they ever were. So I believe if you're someone in your 80s who already has vitamin D deficiency, who already has a weakened immune system, combine that with something that may potentially be stripping away your natural immunity, this flu season is going to be an absolute nightmare. And that's the kind of data and that was the rationalisation that I came to for all of this. Got you. What's your next prediction? Okay, so my next prediction is, and this is one of my, my crazy ones, but I genuinely think this is going to be true, cold weather especially we know constricts the blood vessels. Mm. Now, we know these jabs heart, cause heart inflammation. Now, I am predicting that around August and September we are going to see our athletes start going down. Now, all over the world, we're seeing pro athletes dying on the pitch and we're seeing people mysteriously dying. But why is it always the athletes? I track the numbers and basically seven to eight months after a country starts giving boosters, you start to see athletes go down. But not just athletes, but I refer to as the weekend athletes, the marathon runners, the people who like to go out cycling on the weekends. All these people are pretty athletic but not professional athletes. So... If this particular prediction is true, we're going to see our first athlete go down August, September with a cardiac arrest, probably die on the pitch. Um, we've already seen some athletes starting to have to need um, EKG in the locker rooms. We're already starting to see that. But the idea is the cold weather constricts the blood vessel. The blood vessel's already inflamed, so that means it's throwing plaque more often. Plaque is a naturally occurring, you know, occurring thing based on your cholesterol, but we're going to see genuinely healthy people with no pre-existing illnesses just start dropping off like flies around August, September, because that's around the time every other country saw it after they gave their third booster shot. Now, the reason that is so diabolical is because that's occurring at the exact same time that we're seeing a massive increase in flu deaths, right? Mm -hmm. So, Fine. okay, go on. So, flu season is always August, September. August yep. and September is the exact same months I'm predicting to see these heart attacks go off. Yeah. So, how easy would it be to simply switch cause of death, which we already know the World Health Organization have been doing for the last two and a bit years? Any death where you test positive for COVID is marked as a COVID death. How easy would it be to get a pro athlete who has COVID in their system and a PCR detects COVID for up to 28 days after the infection yeah. for them to mark off this as a COVID death? To what and end? To push more vaccines? What? To cover up the vaccine death. Oh, to cover up the vaccine death and just call it COVID's fault. It's COVID. Yeah, call it COVID's fault because basically you're going to see during this peak flu season, all these very healthy people going down with no explanation whatsoever, sudden adult death syndrome, yep. what better time to cover that up than flu season? Okay. Now, again, this is very diabolical. This is very kind of, you know, grand, you know, Dr. Evil type levels of thing, but it's just the dates happen to match up. I'm not saying they're correlated. I'm just saying the dates happen to match up. You are, you are aware that what we publish is going to be around forever. I mean, it's mm -hmm. on Odyssey, which is blockchain-based. We're not going anywhere, and we're yep. now being archived by the National Library of Australia and State Library mm -hmm. of Victoria. So you're bold enough to put all of this permanently on the record. Yeah, of course. No, no, by all means. And like I said, I, I, I reckon we'll see... 40% by the end of this year, a 40% increase in excess deaths. Okay. Um, 
And basically, as I remember saying to you at the, the onset of this, I believe whether it's two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years down the line, we are going to look back on this period and see it for what it was. It was just a crime being committed on a global level. Now, for me, everything I've done, because as I said, I took a risk submitting this work to the Royal Commissions. I named names. I needed the whistleblower support. I took a risk. I put my career on the line to get these predictions out because as far as I'm concerned, they've already started burning books. You know, they've already started erasing history. They've already started covering things up. So how easy would it be for them just to move on and forget to the next distraction? So I want these on permanent record. I want these public disclosure because, oh, here you go, sorry. No, no, because why? Because you, you don't want them to burn the books. Yeah, I basically don't want them to cover up. I want a paper trail that acknowledges because, and again, going back full circle, Everything I predicted from day dot could have been prevented. That's why I said I'm not in the fear market. I'm not here to spread anxiety. I'm not here to say well, everyone's going to die and asteroids coming. I'm here to say I warned you and offered a solution. You ignored me. I warned you and offered you a solution and you ignored me. I warned you and offered you a solution and you ignored me. At that point in time, that's their fault, that the onus is on them to admit we could have prevented all of this. You know, we so could how, have stopped it. So how many predictions do you, do you have? We've gone through two. So two, and the third one is that um, I, and this is, everyone's saying this is, this is common, but I like to spice it up with a specific date prediction. My third prediction is April 2023 that China will invade Taiwan. April 2023. Um, what are you basing that on? Okay, so this, this is quite a, a specific analysis. First and foremost, Russia laid the, bru the blueprint. Russia has showed the world that they no longer fear the US, that they can, their economy is now better than it was pre-invasion because they're selling everything off to a discount to India, Sri Lanka, the gas deals, the oil deals. They've proven that they can just ignore sanctions. Now, the reason they've done what they've done is to guarantee trade loans. So we know China's eventually going to take Taiwan because they have to guarantee their sea lanes. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. But first and foremost, they need to wait for the American midterms because they need to see if there's a change of balance of power or a swing. And they really need to know if the Republicans are going to win the 2024. So they're going to have to wait on that. And then very similar to Russia and Ukraine, you've got to factor in the weather. Now, Russia knew based on the fact that Ukraine are one of the biggest distributors of uh, wheat, that they needed to come in at the right time to affect global uh, food markets. So China's winter is usually about a six-month winter and ends in March. Now, their invasion would be a sea-to-land invasion, which you need very good weather conditions. So I'm, I'm saying that the minute that weather clears up, whether it's March or April, we're going to see them launch a full-scale invasion of Taiwan which will only take about a week, mind you, because of their military power. But it's basically, and again, it's one of these things that anyone could say that. Anyone could say that it's inevitable. Anyone could say that, well, of course, war is inevitable. Of course, what's going to happen. But what I want people to know, not just about myself, but about the world and about the way we are, we're secular. We follow these patterns, these cycles. So 
if it is around March or April, doesn't necessarily mean I was right. Doesn't necessarily mean I knew something that others didn't. You know, it's not psychic. I can't see the future. But what it does mean is it reinforces that my ability to see the flags were accurate. And since I have been accurate so far to pretty much 90% of all my other predictions, when will people realise that we can stop these things before they happen? It's about prevention. Okay, so my initial accusation of your Mm. early predictions was that they were too general perhaps. These ones are not general. They're very specific, 30% and so on, and you've got dates. Now, nothing's perfect. You know, we have to have a margin of error. What margin of error will you claim you're still correct? So let's say there were, you said 30%, was it 30% increase in flu deaths this season? I'm saying 300%. Sorry, sorry, 300%. 300% increase of flu deaths. So if it increases by 280%, then I think we can all agree you were correct. Yeah. But if it only increases by 80%, mm. are you claiming the win or not? No. Okay. Because it's got to be, it's got to be a significantly, you know, a statistically significant increase on variation. And it has to be in this season. Yeah, that'll be this flu season. Okay. Because it's basically, I'm- it's flu deaths, which will be marked as flu rona deaths. They'll be marked as variant deaths, but they'll still be flu deaths. I'm setting up mm. uh, boundaries so yeah, that when no. we talk again in six mm. months' time, we can have an honest discussion on what you got right and what you got wrong yep. and so on. Okay. And so uh, same with China. If China invades, I think they're... <laughs> They're eventually going to evade, mm. but if they if they invade in in the middle of uh, December winter this year, mm. uh, then I, I wouldn't give you that win. Is that fair? No, no, that, that's that's perfectly fine. But I think going right back to the start, and you know, again in a secular pattern, if I can prove my ability within a twenty percent, you know, let's say twenty percent miss rate. Yeah. Remember what we were talking about at the start of the conversation that solving psychological and behavioural issues are not about the issue themselves right. but about identifying the triggers. Right. So if I can prove that I can identify the trigger that's going to cause an invasion or the trigger that's going to cause flu deaths, it means that I can predict the trigger of what your condition is. Okay. You know, I can, I can, I can, it, pro- it doesn't, again, prove is the wrong word, but yeah. it gives credence to my psychological framework, it gives credence to my self belief that I have this unique ability. Okay. If I don't, then I'm just a normal guy, aren't I? You know what I mean? Like, and we had a fun conversation. Yeah. Hey, all right. So, okay, you've given us your um, mm. past predictions, you give us your future predictions. Uh, is there anything, we've been going for an hour and a half. Is there anything else that you wanted to chat about while we're here on the record? Uh, because I'm I'm pretty nervous about everything you've described mm. coming true. But yeah, look, uh, I, anything else you want to talk about? Well, I guess it's um I've had been having this conversation a lot, and I tell people that we lost the war. Like I know that's a grand term, but this election proved that the majority of Australians, now whether you want to argue that Labor won by majority, that the, the truth is they won. However you want to spin it, they won majority. So that indicates that the majority of Australians are okay with what's happening. That means that the majority of Australians do not want to see what's happening. So that, that, that's ultimately what I've been telling people is you've got to realise that you can't wake people up now 
You can't change their minds. It's beyond that point. You've got to start working on self-preservation. You've got to work on building your own security, your own financial, your own physical, your own emotional security. And that's what I've been doing, completely rebranding. Because I know that there's a very strong chance I won't be able to ever work in the same way as I used to. So I've got to completely rechange my business. So I'm basically telling people that it's going to get much worse. If, if you didn't like the events of the last three years, it's going to get significantly worse in terms of the mandates, the lockdowns, the government surveillance. Obviously, we see that um, I reckon America will announce around September that they're in a recession. So we'll see the global food shortages that's already been happening and everything. So I'm encouraging everyone on the record, publicly, privately to my clients is work on your own health, be as fit as possible, learn to intermittent fast, and, and that may be difficult for someone like you who likes snacking on sugar, but learn to skip I, meals, you know, learn to ration food. And I tell people to develop a warlike mindset. And it doesn't mean like, you know, that doesn't mean like bombs and guns and running around playing soldier. It means Get used to rationing power. Get used to rationing water. Get used to rationing your food. Get used to being uncomfortable because that's what we've seen. Complacency and comfort, are, they're just as, you know, they're just vices that are as bad as sugar or alcohol. You know, so we need to encourage people with positivity, encourage people to build their immune system back to where it should be. Healthy diet, exercise, sunlight, proper sleep. How often are those really encouraged like to the level they should be? So that's basically what we're doing in, in this kind of movement, I guess, the freedom movement. Okay. I mean, at, at the end of the day, your recommendations that you just described about mm. healthy living are not bad, even if you're completely wrong. Mm. But um, I, I just want to wave the flag for the centrist, I don't know if that's even the right term, but the majority out there that you just described as cannot be woken up. Because mm. there are those for sure, and I see the NP, the non-player characters walking around like zombies. Mm. Uh, so you know, you got the the sort of the lovers of the the lockdowns and so mm. on. But then you got these NPCs, which describes a large bulk of the population. Mm. But there's also a sizable part in the middle there that is more representative of our audience and of my thinking. So I've just listened to you describe all of these yeah. things to me, and with an open mind and trying to find, trying to test it, trying to find what's real. A lot of what we talked about, I was, I'm, I'm not convinced of the same motives as you are mm. that that they're there, and I think, but I'm also not an NPC saying you're a conspiracy theorist. Get off my mm. channel. You're here for a reason, and I appreciate you being here. So there are people like me questioning mm. and trying to find the truth, but we're not convinced by the evidence that's being put forward. So my challenge to you and to those who are fighting to wake up people is please keep working on your craft and get better at it because I think that, you know, if, if I'm only convinced by 35% of what you said today, you could easily convince me of 50% just mm. by tightening up. And so I think there's a bit of onus on those people to do a bit of a better job. And I, it's, I know it's not fair. To, I know that they've all been abused by their governments, but, you know, you've got to stand up and take responsibility and this is your time. So... I, I think it's a bit of a cop-out, not with you, but I've seen others mm. say, you know what, screw the sheep. They're all going to hell. We're just going to live over here in our, in our silo. And they can all die. Um, 
Hmm. I don't know about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Do you mind if I, um, as we were saying, do you mind if I take a crack? crack hey, you? I, open, please. Okay. Um, so I could be asleep. I could be a sleepy no, sheep. Say, um, are we to, uh, to assume that you're Chinese? Or uh, Chinese yes, so my, heritage? Yeah. So my dad uh, is Chinese. My mum's from, well, she's dead. She was New Zealand, but white basically. And mm-hmm. I was born and grew up in Australia. But my, just to give you a bit of context, my parents split when I was like two. So mm. I was raised with my mum without that Chinese influence and barely saw my dad. Mm. But go ahead. Yep. As you say, do, do you find that that's ever a trigger for your eating? Uh, what, the Chinese? Well, basically, no, no, no. Obviously, your conditions were, I would wager as a young child, were you given a lot of, Ice cream or sugary treats. Yeah, yeah. Coping mechanism, yeah, rewards, yeah, yeah. sorries, everything. If you're sad, yeah. that's what we, yeah. Ice cream, yeah. So, I mean, again, anyone can come to that conclusion, but we're basically just saying that as an adult, you needing comfort and reassurance. Mm. Um, it's basically, you know, connecting you to your mother who was looking mm. after you at the time of these great stresses. Mm-hmm. So I wager that. And that's the thing. I would never want to disconnect you. Like I'd never want to disconnect you from you know having you know positive kind of. That's the tricky thing. That if that that's a, a wild theory. That's kind of a, a wild connection there. But maybe, and this is how we reframe it. Maybe binging for you isn't a bad thing. Although too much excess sugar can be a bad thing. But if yeah. that's what connects you to the memory of, you know, positive memories or you connecting with, you know, a loved one, mm. then that's just your mind essentially creating new pathways to validate those memories. Isn't there an objective reality, though, where we can say binging is bad? Yeah, of course. So then why, So, you, but you just said it might not necessarily be a bad thing because it's connected me to my family. Yeah, but you can, you can exercise the sugar off. You can work it out of your system, you know. So typically, uh, I, I can kind of tell that you're not morbidly obese. I can kind of tell that you used to you know, be. Yeah, used you to be. look after yourself. So basically, overconsumption is only an issue when you allow it to be an issue. Like bodybuilders can consume ten thousand calories and they don't have a shred of fat on them. Yeah. So I would say that if you were a client. I wouldn't even consider, again, that's if the, if, the, if the pattern tracks and if the connotation tracks, that I wouldn't even necessarily consider that a bad thing. And I think that's, again, one of the fundamentally differences and failures of modern psychology is that nine out of ten people will tell you that that overconsumption of sugar is a bad thing. Yeah. But if it's being caused by a trigger that is positive and that's part of being an actuary, as we said from the start, is evaluating that maybe it is repressed memories or repressed resentment or repressed feelings that you address. So the eating of the ice cream is just a manifestation of repressed emotion in which you can treat the repressed emotion without ever changing the ice cream. I thought you were going to come at me for um, the this, this sleepy sheep thing. No, no, you said, you know, it's basically, like I said, re- reading your tells and trying to understand the kind of person you are and seeing, like I said, 
you know, you have to you have to listen to people, and you have to empathize. That you do keep a very neutral tone, which is great for interviews. But as I said, I thought you know it'd be nice to see if I picked up on anything that may remotely help you. And that's all. It's you know. I do leave lots of breadcrumbs all over the place mm. for people who care to watch, but I don't believe it's my job as an interviewer to sit here and give heaps of opinion like Joe mm. Rogan does or um, some of the other big podcasters do. I'm more interested in your opinion. So, look, um, I am if I'm very uh, grateful that you came on to chat. Mm. I'm also honest with you and the listeners. I'm not convinced of everything. Uh, I guess there's half the people screaming at me now. I, I, if you're not going to wake up now, Matt, you'll never wake up. Yeah. But there's a whole bunch of people as well who'd be saying, yeah, I'm not sure either. Mm. We'll see. I think that's the, 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 the case. We'll see, won't we? Mm. We'll see in six months' time. Yeah, and I really look forward to, to coming back in six months' time and seeing what was accurate and seeing what was not because, like I said, that's what it all comes down to. You, I'm not I'm not going to be like in six months' time. I would have said that. I'm going to be accountable and responsible for my comments because that's what gives me value as a human being. And that's what we sorely lack from a lot of our leaders and you know people of authorities that they don't take accountability for what they said 12 months ago. So I'm going to own it and I look forward to seeing if any of this comes true. I hope it doesn't. Don't get me wrong. I hope it doesn't come true. But if it does, you'll know that, you know, I've done what I can to warn people. That's all this is about. Hey, Just thank uh, you for your I, time, mate. Yeah. Of course. If I uh, gave you a magic wand, how would you fix the whole world? Um, I'd bring in one single law. Yeah. I could fix the world in one single law. Yeah. And that's it. End of every year, you have to spend 30% of your money. 30%. Okay. It doesn't matter what you spend it on. You can burn it. You can waste it. You can put it in a rocket and shoot it into the sky. Because the reason is fine. Okay. Yeah. The reason we um have so many problems is people hoard money. It's not that there's enough money in the world. It's just people don't spend it. People with billions of dollars who give it to their kids, give it to their kids, give it to their kids. Let's clean their bank account. Let them build marble castles that are a 1,000 feet in the sky. Let them do whatever they want. But we have to get everyone to spend their money. Okay. Solve every problem overnight like that. I've never heard that answer. Very good. Thank you, Tim, for uh, one of the most uh, out there podcasts I've ever done, mm. ideas that I just don't normally think about. So thank you for challenging me. And if people want to check out your work, they can go to, I'll put all the links down below, yep. but I assume your, web, your website is the place to go. Yep. Yeah, and, and Facebook, yeah. And just reach out to me anytime. Like I said, I love conversation. I love just chatting with people. I don't hold judgments. You know, people share their opinions. That's what life's all about. Links are below. Hope you enjoyed the dive with me into the pool of, of Tim's mind and we'll see you for the next episode, everybody.